Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grumbacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, a strong and powerful Dan Caprill. Dan, are you ready to do this? I'm ready to rock, George. Excellent. Let's do this. Dan is a CFP. He is a financial advisor and the owner of Money and Clarity. He's also the CEO of Advisor Architect. He is the author of Mistake-Free Retirement, Retirement Rescue, and he's the host of the Profitable Advisor Podcast. I'm excited to have you on Dan, tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Sure. Um, I'm actually one of those, uh, I guess, lucky people in that I had the opportunity to to live wherever I want to live. And even though my office is in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is a very nice town, I was able to build my practice in a way that I can now live in Nashville, Tennessee. And that's largely due to the fact that from almost the beginning, I had a very systems orientated mindset when I came up through business. And so when I decided to start my own planning firm, I wanted a firm that eventually could run without me. And when I did that and the planning firm became quite successful, I had a number of other advisors reach out to me for advice on how they could do something similar. Now, in truth, I didn't make up any of the things. I mean, I learned them from other people. Uh, One of the best influences I ever had in my life was reading the book, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Mm. And I really took that to heart because if I didn't build a business that was based on systems, then I would never, in my mind, be a real entrepreneur. To me, an entrepreneur truly just works on his business, doesn't work in it. And you don't get there overnight. But I was able to do that. And once I had it up and running free of my day to day and I'm involved, but I don't actually have to be there. uh, That's when my wife and I decided to actually still have a place in Cincinnati, but our primary home is here in Nashville. And now, in addition to running the planning firm, uh, which actually my partner now runs, uh, we have Advisor Architect, which is a company dedicated to showing other business owners, specifically financial advisors, how to have a similar type business that focuses on running in a very systematic way and focuses not on hitting revenue goals, but on hitting profit goals. Which is what everybody wants anyway at the end of the day. You would think so, right? (laughs) However, our industry, you know, we have been so motivated and I blame the product vendors. I blame the companies that provide the products that financial advisors sell. Um, we're so often motivated by hitting production goals, sales goals. Um, and I see it when I look at firms that have bloated staffs that never really talk about profitability. They're, they're just, you know, they want the next hundred million, even though they'll admit very often that the next hundred million isn't, or the second hundred million wasn't nearly as profitable as the first. And there's a problem there. So you would think that, I mean, you would think that we would all aspire to be our wealthiest clients. Hmm. And yet, I think too many of us financial advisors are like dentists with bad teeth. Hmm. Uh, We don't always walk the walk, and that's problematic. Yeah, well, I certainly appreciate that. And I I discovered the e-myth. I I wish I could tell you the date or how many years it's been. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that that has always resonated with me as well. And I I came to appreciate the value and the necessity of systems um, some years ago also. Mm -hmm. Do you find that, that, that... that most advisors or professionals or entrepreneurs, um, is it more like the E-Myth? It's people who have just created full-time jobs for themselves versus actually 
created uh, companies? Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, you make a good point because it's not just financial advisors. Um, you know, the the myth talks about a baker, and if a baker is great at baking bread, he owns the bakery. As long as he's still baking the bread, he's not an entrepreneur. What he really should do is teach someone else how to bake it that way, and he can go on and start the next store. Um, without a doubt, most business owners are the main technician, and that's okay. That's perfectly all right, but. Some of them delude themselves a little bit into thinking they're entrepreneurs. I think because we like the name, the way it sounds, frankly. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's more pleasing. It sounds more impressive when you tell people that you're an entrepreneur. But I think, I think what we just are going through now with COVID really started to show who was a true entrepreneur versus who was not. Who just ran a business where they were the center of the business. And you extract them from that operation, it falls apart. So no, that's clearly still the majority of businesses out there. Um, Gerber's book, which frankly is worth reading once a year, although I probably have 30 books I say that about that you should read them <laughs> once a year, but it's a refreshing reminder. Now again, it's nothing wrong with saying, look, I, will, I like being a business owner, I like being the technician, this is what I'm going to do, that's fine. But I do think the entrepreneurial uh, standard, if you will, is worth aspiring to. I think for many people, it would give them the reward that they sought when they decided to work the incredible hours of being a business owner. And more importantly, they'd make a lot more money doing it that way. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I was going to ask, is it is it ego that, that, that maybe stops a lot of people from doing the things that it takes to make themselves irrelevant to the business? Not that they're no, irrelevant, but it. I think it's the absolute opposite. I mm-hmm. think it's a sense of insecurity. Okay. Um, you know, you think about it, the people who have the largest egos that we know about, they like having a team of people around them. Mm. They like being able to just have the time to focus on the big stuff and not worry about the little details. No, I think it's unfortunately quite the opposite. And as a result, there's a lack of aspiration or this lack of willingness, maybe is the better word, to take a risk. And I don't mean financial risk. I mean the risk of training somebody else, the risk of maybe telling a bad prospective client no because it just doesn't fit. I mean, just take, for example, the ultimate systems business, McDonald's. In fact, in the movie, uh, The Founder, there's a great scene in there where uh, Ray Kroc, Michael Douglas is playing Ray Kroc, and he's arguing with the McDonald's brothers and even some of the other franchisees owners about how to run the business. And his point was, look, we're not going to allow for everybody to just come in and do it their own way. We're going to have a set way, and we understand it won't be for everybody. And that takes a little chutzpah to do that because so many business owners are somewhat starved or they have a scarcity mentality about where the next client is going to come from and they fear that if they're not super flexible if they're not always there for everybody then they won't get the next customer and that's short-sighted thinking it you know mcdonald's clearly doesn't try to be everything to everybody i mean they don't even promote that their food tastes good (laughs) what they do promote is no matter where you go in the country it'll taste the same that's it Hmm. and that's been enough to make them such a large entity. I mean, you take other companies, Domino's Pizza. Domino's was in the early days, and this eventually got them into trouble, but their whole thing was, we'll get the pizza to you fast and hot. They never said it was gonna be good. So there was this level of reliability that you could count on. So no, I, I you know, it's not because of ego. 
I, I think with most business owners, it, unfortunately, it's the complete opposite. And look, I'm not suggesting anybody become, you know, an egomaniac. I'm just suggesting that when you understand that building systems will allow you to let other people run those systems. And I'm not suggesting that you bloat your overhead. In fact, quite the opposite. Systems are actually done much more cheaply than if you're just kind of winging it or you're the center of the operation, especially if you have systems for all areas of your business. But if you do it that way, you will find that, quite frankly, people can do the job as good, if not even better than you, but you can also get it done more quickly, more consistently. Your clients are going to be happier, and really, quite frankly, you're going to have a better life. Yeah, I think that the McDonald's, um, that, that really is the perfect uh, the, the perfect example of yeah. just this is how it's done. And, and if you do commit to that, it's going to have all the benefits that you just described. You're going to sure. have clarity on who your, who your customer is. You're going to have clarity on, on how you're going to do the business. And it's going to empower you to bring on people. It's going to empower you to, to cut those people loose that, that maybe aren't or no longer your, your ideal customer or client. And it'll empower you to tell other people no, that, that you're not coming into my organization. Which is a real problem, if I can get back to financial advisors, because there's this desire to help everybody. And so as a result, you become this jack of all trade and you end up being perceived more as a product salesperson than you really are as a skilled practitioner who can help people make really wise decisions. But some people just don't need your expertise. They may need somebody else's. They don't necessarily need yours. And what advisors need to do in their marketing system is and in their selling system probably more than their marketing system is to have a method for filtering out a ideal client versus a non-ideal and if someone is not ideal uh you move on i see so many bad examples now where and it's not just again it's not just financial advisors where we've almost gotten into this bribery approach towards getting new clients it's kind of like in the old days when when banks would give you a free toaster or a free blender <laughs> you came you know and now I see it with, with financial advisors all the time. They'll give away an Amazon gift card, or there was one recently that gave away a device that keeps track of your pulse. Look, if somebody really wants to work with you, they don't need to be bribed. In fact, they're gonna view that as kind of cheesy, and that's gonna be a motivation not to work with you. So understand who your target market client is and develop a message specifically that's gonna attract them. Most financial advisors aspire to having somebody of above average wealth for all the obvious reasons. But the motivations that they use to attract these people usually are quite ineffective and it becomes in time just a very frustrating experience for them. And it's largely because, again, they don't really have a true system that was developed with that specific client in mind when it comes to their marketing. I appreciate everything everything you just said. So perhaps we can go through an example of if we were to design the perfect uh the perfect financial planning firm it, mm-hmm. or let's just use stacy yeah. and stacy's a really really exceptional financial advisor and let's just kind of go down that path of identifying okay. you know yeah. who her ideal client is and then building it up yeah. from there yeah absolutely well the first thing i would do is i would say to stacy i would say to stacy um how much money do you want to bring home i've seen mm-hmm. examples where and i'm just going to use nice rounded numbers so let's say, for example, Stacy's practice had a revenue of a million dollars. And let's say Stacy was bringing home 250,000. So she's got an overhead of 75%. So the first thing I would ask Stacy is, how much would you like to bring home? And I see this happen all the time, where the desired 
take-home pay is significantly lower than the current revenue. And to the advisor, the solution to the problem is double the revenue. And it's not, because I will contend with Stacy that if you're running at a 75% overhead, you're doing a lot of things wrong. Mm-hmm. I've been running a very large financial planning practice for a long time, and the, the most expensive year we've ever had was a 50% revenue. Usually we have, or 50% um, expense rate, I should say. Usually our expense ratio is around 40%, and that's by design. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to work our way backwards. And we're first going to focus on what is it that the owner wants. If the current revenue is greater than what the current owner wants, well, then it's quite easy. Then we just basically extract out what the, uh, excuse me, what the owner's wants are. And then we just start trying to build the practice from there. Now, having said that, I'm assuming there's going to be some margin here. But once we determine how much money we do have for operating expense, and again, I'm not one of these believers that, especially in established practice. I'm I'm not one of these believers that you should go out and run up a lot of debt. I'm not a big believer in spending your savings. What I'm a big believer on is using current revenue to fund the operation. So once we've determined what the profit goal is going to be, now we're going to start developing a marketing strategy where first and foremost, you're going to have a specific target market. Now, I've seen this done incredibly well by advisors who will literally lock into an industry. I just got done interviewing Reese Harper out of Salt Lake City, and Reese only works with dentists. Um, Natalie Schmuck in Atlanta only works with optometrists. I know another other advisors who have positioned themselves as being, for example, the advisor to companies like Procter & Gamble. It's very smart. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have other target markets, but when you position yourself as an expert in a certain area, provided that that target market is deep enough, you're going to find your marketing to be highly effective. Now, it takes courage. A lot of people think, you know, if I start doing that, I mean, when Reese Harper decided to become the specialist for dentists, he had some dentist clients. He didn't have a lot. (laughs) But he understood long term, as he brought one dentist in, he could basically move a non-dentist out of his practice. So he did it very intelligently. He didn't just suddenly say, okay, everybody, you're gone. No. Over time, he made himself to be where he was just the expert for dentists, and now he's in such demand. I mean, just think about all the times dentists get together for, for various trade shows, et cetera, and to have somebody like him to come in and talk about something other than dentistry, he's going to be in very high demand. So the first thing I'm going to always recommend that you do is you have a specific target market. Now, you can target in other ways. The way my practice is always targeted is we've actually targeted people who have 401k plans, not nearly as narrow and perhaps as effective as as Reese's, but it works because what we do is we talk about the specific problems of having a 401k plan. So the ticking tax time bomb that's associated with it. So if you have a 401k plan and you start seeing like my book being promoted about how it can blow up, you know, your, your, your 401k is a ticking tax time bomb. That is going to create a response. That person is much more likely to be responsive to that message. The third part, though, is how do I deliver that message in a form of media that they are going to hear? So I see a lot of people using social media these days, but the key question I often have is, that's fine, but is social media really drawing attention to your target market? Now, if you have no target market, then fine. But a lot of times I see where there's this market to message to media mismatch. And you only have to get one of those three things wrong. So if you don't have that piece in place, it's going to be harder for you to build your list. 
the perfect financial planning practice, in my opinion, would be one that is constantly working on building its list of people who have reached out to them first for information that they offered. Why? Because that information was specific to the target market. And then you're going to begin an ongoing process of nurturing. Once you get the marketing in place, then you need a selling system. And a selling system is not one where you're using persuasive words. Uh -uh. An effective selling system in today's world is one where you actually spend most of your time in that first meeting disqualifying the person, determining what are the things that could get in the way of this person being an ideal client because you only offer your services to ideal clients and you have a system in place for identifying those. Once you get that in place, then you go to automation. And if you have good automation, you will find you don't need a staff of seven or eight people. I contend, I've had a practice where I've got about 200 million of assets under management. We work with about 220 families nationwide. I have had only one assistant my entire career. And that person still takes Friday afternoons off. So when I see these operations running with seven or eight people, it makes absolutely no sense to me. And I know when I actually look at the tasks that these people say they do, they're not doing full-time jobs. Mm. After automation system, now you need to work into client retention. You need to have client retention not only for your existing clients, but you need to make sure that you have a system in place to get their children as clients. Because when those clients pass away, if you don't have the children already as clients, you're not going to keep the money. The last system would be in would, would, would be a succession plan where you are at some point, you don't have to sell your practice. In fact, I don't recommend any advisor sell their practice. Some point when you want to, you can step away from the day to day, live 300 miles or wherever you want to live, and just let that practice run itself. You monitor it, absolutely, but it doesn't nearly take the time and energy of actually running it on the day to day. So that to me is the ideal um, system. There's seven systems and all that a well-designed financial planning firm would have. And quite frankly, it's not a whole lot different than what any company should have. Yeah, I love it. I think that makes sense. Nice. Well, Dan, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? Well, yeah, I mean, my difference-making tip would be think like a direct marketer. You're going to learn a lot more from catalog companies than whoever are going to be from watching ad firms. Build a list. Spend your time developing materials, physical materials too, mind you. Don't get caught up in this digital age. Physical materials, write a book. It's not that hard, especially when you understand most people will order it and won't even read it. Have, uh, have some type of materials that you can build a list, that you can promote the, the materials. And then from that list, then systematically nurture those people. The, the financial advisors right now who are killing it in webinars, they're the ones who understood this before this whole COVID crisis hit because the people coming to their webinars are the people who already ordered their stuff. So think like a direct marketer. You're going to have a lot more success. Well, like that is great stuff. That definitely gets come on. Come on. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? How can they engage with you? Best place to go is my uh, website, dancapril.com. Subscribe to my daily email. Again, Dan Capril. Capril is C-U-P-R-I-L-L. I send out an almost daily email. Um, it is focused mostly towards financial advisors, but even if you're not, there's a lot of great business tips in there that, that we provide. So I would start there and um, see where it goes. Love it. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Dan your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas, go to dancapril.com. That's D-A-N-C-U-P-R-I-L-L.com. Sign up for the email. 
and learn about how to better systematize your business. Thank you again, Dan. Thank you. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight. We are all in this together. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step-by-step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show.